I'd like to welcome our sponsor, FormAssembly. FormAssembly's all-in-one web form platform lets you create forms for just about any use case, from contact forms to donation forms, all while taking advantage of useful features such as notifications, e-signatures, and more. Not only that, but you can also connect data to systems you already use. FormAssembly integrates with Salesforce, Pardot, PayPal, and many other common solutions. You can find out how FormAssemblies help Salesforce customers optimize their data connection in a free ebook that we've linked in today's show notes. Whatever your data collection needs are, you can be sure that FormAssembly keeps your data secure with encryption at rest and in transit on all plans, plus compliance with GDPR, CCPA, and more regulations. At the end of the day, FormAssembly helps you save time, money, and effort while getting the maximum benefit out of the data you collect. And I'd remind you, when you support our sponsors, you support the show. Hi, this is a continuation from the last episode. So now it's it's getting much clearer for me. So the first step is really just to parse the things out and uh, you know put them onto the table. Yeah. And the second step, which is m- much more difficult, <laughs> as I see, it's really pull the strings to see where the dependencies rely. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah, if you get everything on the table, then you can see what the problem is, um, and th- and then you can start work. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Then what what is the output from this phase? Did you get uh, some certain map or, or or diagram out of this? So uh, there's there's really two. The the headline output, if you like, the thing that most people see is the issue log, um, as it's termed in in the tooling, um, which is really just a set of diagnostic messages that says, you know, you reference this class here, that class doesn't exist, or you try to call this function and that doesn't exist. You know, that kind of uh, pretty basic level of uh, of error messaging. Um, there is a secondary result here, which is in some ways is more important for ongoing tooling, which is part of this validation second pass I've been talking about. We build a dependency graph between the components. Um, There's actually two dependency graphs in it. There's one which is built at the class level, so at the outer class level. So it says this outer class depends on this one. But internally, there's a more detailed version that says this code block um, inside this method, say, is referencing that function over there. So it it ties it up at a much more detailed level, um, which is very useful for when you want to start doing more detailed analysis. So on one of the example analysis I've been playing with is um, uh, showing unused methods and fields, uh, which is often a problem in large code bases where people just change and forget that actually this field is no longer used. And that's done through the dependency analysis. Essentially, we do the, the full validation of the package and then we go through, uh, through the classes and say, okay, let's look at all of these fields and check that somebody's referencing them. And if nobody's referencing them, they're probably not in use. Uh, and that's how it, it kind of works. So there's this kind of graph hidden underneath the, the surface, which is a uh, valuable for second level analysis, really, or further analysis. Mm-hmm. 
When I uh, use, for example, Visual Studio Code to write a JavaScript, the LinkedIn tool, once I, I declare, uh, for example, a string and I never use it in the class, then it's grayed out of yeah. the color, which tells me it's never used. So this is similar to what you're doing, right? Yeah, yeah, very similar. I think you, you, you've got to have a reasonably high level of confidence that you're finding all references, which is why I'm using mm. it as a sample problem to make sure that I'm you know, not missing anything. Uh, and then if you know that nobody's referencing it, then you can just say, yeah, you're not in use. There are other techniques you can use to find similar, but this is the most exact. Uh, and obviously, uh, reducing false positive rates in tooling is really, um, you know, very important. So um, given this is a pretty yeah. exact model, it's quite quite handy. I see. Um so that's the output of this phase. Um, let's say, how much time would it take if I have a regular size managed package? I want to run your tool. How long does it take to get the output? So it does vary um, a little based on something we haven't talked about yet. It has a cache, but I'll, I'll ignore that for the moment. Um, on the packages okay. I use, um, we're typically looking at uh, maybe 30 seconds for an analysis. Um, uh, mm. Obviously, everybody's hardware is a little different. You know, if you, that's on kind of pretty modern hardware. If you've got something a little older, it'll take a bit longer. Um, mm -hmm. and that's that's to run through all of the metadata, do the pass, and then run this validation pass to build the graph and report any issues out. Um, mm. The cache is something I've added fairly recently, which is an on-disk cache. So after the validation phase, after we've done all of this work, I can now flush the... Um, parsed version onto disk and then next time you analyze that project or something pretty similar it will load the majority of that metadata straight off the cache uh, and in those cases it's kind of i typically see maybe 10 seconds as a load time or analysis time um, so it's kind mm. of a, about a third of the cost of the original version um, okay it's good we have a cache right so we don't need to run it all the time Yes, yeah, it is. Um, there's various versions of that. I, I think the one we've got is quite good in that um, it's uh, if you're working, say, you've got two different directories, uh, it's the same cache. So uh, as a developer, you know, uh, you often move around different directories which have the same cause, source code in. So the cache works. It's not in the directory. It's in your home directory. So the cache will work on any version of you that you've got and if you've got a branch out which maybe has a slight change from the one that you originally it still works so i kind of like the cache that it's very flexible and uh, um, it's been mm. a fairly recent addition it's taken quite a bit of effort to get in but it does work really well that's cool that's cool i understand this is all the step right from the high level yeah. point of view the final output is that uh, uh, map that's cached into your disk yeah, so uh, the dependencies are, you know, they, they end up on the cache. Uh, they're also in memory if you want to interrogate them um, dynamically. You know, we can bring this back into memory now quite quickly um, so you can run other analysis. I think maybe what's important here to understand is I very much see Apex Link as being uh, a base level package. It's quite complex internally. And what you don't want to do is kind of throw lots of different analysis types into that kind of code base. So if I want to do an analysis, I build it as a separate piece of logic. 
Um, so I use that to build up the graph so I can understand the code base. And then I write the analysis as a separate piece um, because each analysis tends to be slightly different. Um, the one I haven't done separately is the one that, that's currently out there, the kind of unused that's kind of built in because it was just you know quick and easy for me to do it that way. Um, but largely mm. it's better not to try and build all of your analysis into your core um, because the core just gets too complex. Um, so to okay. give examples of things that um, we've looked at in the past, what, one of them is a, a bit of an odd one as an example, but uh, one of the questions I was asked a while ago was, if you went to a visual force page, could you tell me what labels might appear on that visual force page? And and people think, oh, well, that's easy. I just look at the labels on the page that are in use. But of course, a lot of the labels that would appear on a page come through exceptions. Um, you know, it's certainly in our packages, you know, it's the exception messages which are coming off labels. So actually what you need to do is start at the page, walk from the page into the controller, which is in Apex, then walk all of the methods that that's calling and have a look at each of these methods and find out what labels they're using. And then you can get a complete set of all the labels that might appear. Now, uh, that was a very specific mm. analysis somebody was interested in doing, and, and it, I kind of played with it and implemented it. But it's implemented as something separate from the core library. You know, it's just a layer because it's a very specific kind of problem that sits over the top. I see, I see. I see you have another tool called Apex Assist, right? Yeah. Is that the one you use to analyze the code? Yeah, so I did that. Um, the I did. I wanted to have an extension because one of the problems of the library is it produces like command line output of issues, and uh, as nice as they they are, you still have to then navigate to the file and find the line number and do all of the mechanics of that, which is kind of slow mm. if you're checking lots of issues. Um, so yeah. putting it inside VS Code, it makes that process a lot quicker, a lot more natural. Um, so I, I basically, I created it just really to enable me to do that and then see how it worked inside a VS Code environment. Uh, there is a little bit more to it, which is, um, if we go back to our discussion around uh, using Scala, um, there's a Scala.js uh, subproject which allows transpilation of Scala into JavaScript, um, which hmm. uh, when I first read about this, oh, oh this is probably not going to work very well. So I, I had a bit of a play with it, and it worked really well. So I thought, I'll, I'll carry on doing this. <laughs> and before I, think, I knew I it, yeah. yeah, I think most of the modern languages nowadays has the .js to come up with <laughs> JavaScript. Yeah, everybody needs one of those. <laughs> it's mandatory these yeah. days. Yeah. Um, mm. So I carried on, and, and and I kind of ended up having the whole thing run in JavaScript. And I'm like, oh, that was easy. So so the <laughs> Apex Assist uh, extension is kind of a test bed, but it's also entirely in JavaScript um, to see mm. kind of see how that works. There is some uh, practical reason for doing that. I think you probably know in getting everybody to install Java at the right version and have all the paths set up is uh, a bit awkward and often error prone. And that's not what you really want with an extension if you don't have to do that. You know, so having it in JavaScript mm -hmm. means it installs much easier and the support issues are going to be lower on there. Um, the downside, uh, as I, I think I've mentioned a couple of times on Twitter, is you know performance isn't on a par. You know it really isn't. So it's, okay. a, it's about three times slower than using the JVM version. You know, but okay. But, but if I'm not a hardcore developer, I just want to test how this tool can work. You know, start from the output part. You know, check yeah. the 
the, the graph you generated. So I can use this Apex Assist, which is a Visual Studio Code plugin. Yeah. Right? I can install it from Visual Studio. Okay. Mark. Yeah. It's on the marketplace. Yep. Yeah. I will put the, the link for both of these two tools into our show notes for, for people to check. Okay. Mm-hmm. That'd be great. What What's your future plan? I understand you have achieved such an amazing tool. What are you going to do in the future? Um. Well, I've got quite a few. We've mentioned one before. I'm, I'm interested in generics, templates, and uh, you know different ways of dealing with language. Um, we've mm. looked a bit, or at least I've looked a bit at local execution, which probably is a bit shocking as an idea. Um, so if you understand the package and you understand the language in, can I execute the code in there? And uh, the answer is yes, I can. And uh, then the question is, well, why would you want to do that? You know, Salesforce do all that. Well, actually, uh, it turns out there's a pretty good reason. In, if you go back to issues we have around running large-scale test suites, this has got better over recent years for us. So the, the pressure on this is not as bad in in financial force, but it used to be really, really expensive. And even now, you know, the ability to do test-driven development on the platform is quite restricted. You know, uh, it takes a long time to run tests. We tend to run them in our CI pipeline and rely on that to provide feedback. As you know, as a developer, I'd much when, rather. When you when you say it's restricted, do you mean you need to send the local Apex file to the cloud and then run? Is that the main restriction? Uh, yeah, it's it's the volume of tests that you have to run and how long they take. Um, so I'll give you the parallel here. Um, the full test suite for Apex Link uh, runs in around about 18 seconds on my laptop. That's the whole test suite, mm-hmm. which is about 800 tests. If I was to run that on mm. Salesforce, I would be probably looking, uh, depending on whether you run it in parallel or sequential, um, you know, I'm looking at at least five minutes, you know, uh, it's an order of magnitude different, and in a TDD world, why is why is there such a huge difference? Uh, um, is it the, the platform is not uh, optimized to run this uh, unit test apex tests? I think there's a number of factors you probably point to. Um, obviously, in in the Salesforce world, where you know, running tests against a live database often and the level of mocking that you've used in your tests influences mm. the performance greatly. Um, parallel yeah. testing on uh, on the platform has some issues, although we use, use that quite a lot. Parallel unit testing is very, very beneficial if you can get it to work reliably. You get this unlocked error or something like that. Yeah, unable to lock row is a, a pretty common problem. So you have to kind of work around that, really, and just accept that that's what happens. Um uh, and then I think just execution speed is quite different locally from on the platform, isn't it? We, I think we all know that the, you know, uh, sheer uh, CPU performance is quite different uh, as to how that works. So, so you end up with quite a, a pragmatic difference, don't you, in local test speed versus what you can achieve uh, on the platform. And, and that discourages people, it discourages developers from ever really trying to do TDD. I, I, I think some do try it, you know, some really want to get into it. They understand the benefits of doing that, but it, it's, it's a bit like the refactoring problem I mentioned earlier. You know, it's just not something that's easily uh, achievable today. Um, 
you have to be pretty okay. persistent to get there. So local execution for me really is a matter of saying, well, actually, could we do something around that area that would improve the test throughput so we could test it on our local machines at much higher performance? You know, so I, I want to see uh, an order of magnitude is not enough. I want to see two to three orders of magnitude quicker on the test infrastructure really to get into that TDD space, I think. Um, mm-hmm. I've done a little bit of work around that area, but um, uh, I, I still think, you know, it's still a future for me. It's out there. Um, it looks like you could do it. Um, we've got, we're almost getting to the point where we've got enough tooling to do that kind of work. My skill is, it's totally beyond my skill level. So I can kind of thinking about it, but I don't know how to achieve it. It's really up to <laughs> you guys, like a senior guys. To really and it's a huge benefit for us as a developer, you know. We want to run in the local whenever possible. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think there are quite a few, uh, quite quite a lot of exciting things you can do off the back of this kind of tooling. It's just, uh, you know, people's interest and, and whether they take it. Um, I put an awful lot of kind of... Um, personal effort if you like into into trying to get this tooling to a state but there's a limit to where i can run to so people are interested in this stuff i would encourage them to kind of reach out and i'll try and help them as much as i can to to bootstrap on you know whatever it is you're passionate about um but you know apex link has to remain relatively small um, just because of the you know Mm. limited resource Mm. of course I see. Thanks a lot. Yeah, I will put your contact information, your GitHub repo, and it will shout out in the Twitter as well, just, you know, for yeah. the people, the geeks who really want to go into this. <laughs> yep. Huge if you, benefit. If you've got a burning yeah. desire okay. to see something on the platform, let's make it happen. Yeah. Um, that's all I want to talk about the open source tools you created. So let's now shift a bit back to your role in the financial force. It's a huge company. I know what's your daily work and what's your role in the company? Oh, yeah, so that is a big shift. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess I, uh, I mentioned earlier, so I work for the chief architect. Um, uh, so there's a little bit of history there that I guess people find interesting. So when I joined, Andy Fawcett was uh, the CTO of financial force. Uh, so I worked for Andy mm-hmm. for, uh, I think it was a couple of years before he moved off and, and joined Salesforce. Um, uh, and since then, we've kind of uh, moved to a model where we have a chief architect instead of a, a CTO. Um, so I work for the, the chief architect. Um, inside the company, we kind of have a model these days of saying we don't like too much centralized architecture. I think this is probably different from a lot of uh, smaller ISVs. Um, it, it, we're just too big for to try and centralize for for one small group to like be the architects, if you like. So what we do is we um, have architects on all of those core products that I was talking about earlier. So they all have dedicated architects. They're much closer to the product. They can work with the product managers and with the engineering managers much more closely. And, and of course, they work on the products as well. You know, they're developers on the products. So uh, in terms of what I do, I guess... Um, Partly, I'm supporting that team of product architects and trying to make sure that they're being successful and they have the right tools and capabilities around them. Uh, One of the interesting things about decentralization, from my point of view, is that you've then got to look back at it and say, 
well, it's okay, everybody doing their own thing, but occasionally we want consistency. So we need to share what we learn about the platform between us. You know, that's the best way for us to learn is so we communicate quite a lot between the architects uh, and also where mm. it kind of makes sense is to try and make sure that the products are consistent unless there's good reason not to be. So there's a lot of discussion around, you know, this product would like to do it this way and this product would like to do it another way. And is that is it right that they do different things or should we try and make sure that they're doing the same thing or find common ground? So that's a big part of kind of my day to day. I think there are kind of another couple of pieces I do. Um, one is, um, I guess, what people would think as big architecture. So this is the big strategy stuff um, as opposed to the kind of more detailed product work. Um, a lot of that really, I think, is about trying to make sure that the architecture is fitting what the customers really need. And if it's not understanding how we might change things around, um, so to give a, a more concrete example, there's a, there's a lot of uh, interest around, say, scalability of products. You know, that's a big architecture concern um, because often it goes into strategy about how the product has implemented a certain feature, uh, but it also goes into how the platform supports that kind of feature. Um, you need to have a good understanding of both sets and try and understand whether we're making the right decisions in certain areas of the product or not. And they tend to lead into, mm -hmm. um, I guess, what you'd think of as uh, kind of big expense items, as in they require a lot of team uh, effort to perhaps change a way that we're doing something uh, and a lot of discussion with product managers and engineering managers to make sure we're all making the right decisions. Um, there is right. another aspect to, to what I do, which is um, I have a I run a team as well um, who take on largely what the what you might think is the difficult or hard problems that that come up. So these are uh, they're generally architectural in nature, but they're also customer problems or some mix of those. You know, it's often hard just to say one problem is one thing, isn't it? It's you know, it's something that has an architectural element, um, you know, a, a serious design element, but often it's driven by some customer need. Um, so that team works on those kinds of issues as well. Um, and does quite a lot of core research into Salesforce. So if you see me talking about or, or hear me talking about some feature in regards to Salesforce, which is a bit kind of esoteric, usually it's coming out of that work um, because we need to have a level of understanding of Salesforce, which is pretty deep at times in order to try and make the right options available for the product teams to choose from. I see. I see such a team is like an R&D team. Uh, in financial personal company, right? Yeah. And really build into the platform <laughs> features and to see if something if it works and all that. Some edge cases as well, obviously. Yeah, I was slightly uh, laughing because, in fact, they, they used to be called, uh, the, they are currently called the research team inside Financial Force. Um, they're they're going to have a slight rename, but yeah, you've, you've nailed it in one. Yeah, yeah. so they do okay. uh, almost fundamental research into how the platform operates at times, you know. Uh, mm. which is really actually it's a really interesting area very challenging um in a cloud infrastructure because you know clearly uh, from our point of view uh, salesforce is much a black box um you know we can't see into the internal mechanics and often we're trying to work out what what is it about the internal mechanics that we don't understand um, and that's really quite challenging um you it know is. Uh, particularly around performance scalability you know the things that you know, uh, for, for the right reasons, Salesforce don't really want to give us a lot of information about, 
you know they don't want us to become dependent upon their internal implementation but at the same time you know there are key bits of information that if we don't understand we can make the wrong choices so there's quite a lot of work around that area all right Kevin, that's all I want to, you know, pick your brain from. <laughs> And、uh, yeah, so thanks a lot for sharing your knowledge. So it was great chatting with you. Thank you very so, much. See、yeah. you next time. Yeah.